Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Northeast Law Review podcast. Um, you're probably wondering why Neve's voice has become so deep all of a sudden, but that's not actually her. I'm your guest host today, and you'll have to part with me for the next 40 minutes to about an hour. Um, but the good news is Neve and Matt will be returning and be doing a great job as they always have been with this podcast. So um, no need to worry there. But today, what we're focusing on uh, just before we get, but just before I let the guests introduce themselves, we're focusing on the fairness, justness, and reasonableness of the law, and whether it is fair, just, or reasonable, or whether it should be fair, just, or reasonable. So obviously, this conversation can throw up a lot of uh, broad things. So if you're listening and you perhaps don't even study law, don't worry, don't stop listening because of that, because I'm sure everyone can be a part of the conversation. Um, so let me let the guests introduce themselves. So whoever wants to take it away, take it away. So hi, I'm Libby and I'm a second year law student at Newcastle. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to get into this podcast. <laughs> okay, Libby, thank you. Hi everyone, uh, my name's Dr. Josh Jowett and I'm a lecturer in law at Newcastle Law School and I specialise in legal theory and how morality overlaps with law, if at all. So hopefully I'm going to offer some insights there on that today. Looking forward to talking with you all. Yeah. Hi, I'm Tom, and I study biology and psychology at Newcastle University. Hi, I'm Frank. I'm a first-year law student at the uh, Manchester Uni, and I'm just quite grateful to be here, really. Well, uh, the first thing I want to know about you guys, this is sort of unrelated to the question at hand, but I want to know why you guys chose to study what you study. That might give us a bit of insight into the way you think um, and why the arguments you're going to come up with and the things you're going to say might be might be how they are. So if we want to just go in the same order as we did before, Libby, why are you studying law? Um, so probably when I was about 15, I read a book by a barrister, one of the first female barristers that actually got to be a QC in the UK. And I've always been really interested in history, but she gave quite a lot of theory and discussion and really good arguments about how the law affects women. And I found those points really interesting. Um, and I think it's a really interesting discussion to have. And I think law really throws up those interesting discussions. So that was definitely why I thought that law would be a good subject for me to go into. Yeah, yeah, okay. And uh, Josh? I think it's a cracking question, Ricky. And most people have got a really good answer to it. Um, hopefully mine will live up to that. So you, you might be able to tell from what's left in my accent. I'm originally from a place called Barnsley in South Yorkshire. And kind of big, big on the scene when I was growing up was kind of the suppose residue of the miners' strike in the in the mid nineteen eighties. That was like a big part of my growing up. And I remember there was um, a photo exhibition at a local gallery that had like striking images from the course of that miners' strike. So I went to look at that one lunchtime um, on my break from sixth form. And there was one photo in there, and some of you might have seen it, you might have not. It's a really famous photo of a lady called Leslie Bolton. And Leslie Bolton was a photographer, and she was dispatched to take photos of the strike, and particularly um, the Battle of Orgreave. And there's a wonderful photo, well, so wonderful, it's a terrifying photo of her, um, kind of stuck in mid-pose. She's got her arm raised above her head trying to protect it, because she's just stood up and turned around, and there's a mounted police officer behind her, riding full pelt about to whack around the head with a truncheon mm. and i remember looking at that photo and thinking this is this is really strange to me because that police officer is meant to represent things like law and justice and fairness 
but here he is about to hit a photographer around the head with a baton. And, and most people might think that seems the opposite of what the law should be doing. So right from the off, that got me thinking about law and ethics and morality, fairness, exactly what we're talking about today. Um, so, yeah, when when 16 year old me saw that photo, God knows how many years ago, that really got me interested in this. Yeah, that, that's that that was actually a really good answer. In fact, I started thinking of a few questions right from the outset from that. But um, I'll give <laughs> I'll give Tom a chance to uh, explain why he studies what he studies before we get into that. Yeah, so I study psychology and biology, and I just really really like sort of think about why people think and behave the way they do, and it's sort of something where a deep knowledge of that can it's helpful in all walks of life, and it's applicable to everything you do, and I think it ties in nicely here with. Uh, the sort of question of law and morality and that kind of thing um because you know it's they're both sort of go one and the same and uh yeah so i sort of provide a sort of different insight here hopefully from a non-law perspective yeah hopefully and now frank the last and i definitely hope not the least you want to tell us why you study law frank uh so for me ricky um it's been a bit of a turn of events actually as to how i'm now studying law I think the idea of potentially doing it started when uh, a few weeks after my 18th birthday, I got a letter through the post saying that I had to attend jury service. Uh, that then got postponed until August of 2019. I'd already chosen to study a different course at university. So I was going into doing a biomedical science degree. Um, but those two weeks in August uh, in which I took part um, in that jury service were incredibly insightful. I enjoyed having to talk and deliberate with my fellow jurors at the end. Um, and then over lockdown, over my first year of doing a biomedical science degree, I realized it wasn't for me and I wanted to understand how society operates, um, understand a bit more about the world you live in. And I think law is perfect for that and you get um, a more cutting edge insight into um, society by studying the law, I think, than other humanity uh, subjects. But uh, that's just my opinion. Okay, thank you. So I've realized as this has gone on that I haven't actually introduced myself. Um, so I'm Ricky Pancholi, and obviously I'm going to be the guest host for this podcast. And everything you guys have just said or explained about why you guys study law, I guess an amalgamation of all those things is probably, that's the reason why I also study law. But the main, the main point is I like the conversations that it brings up. It's literally exactly what we're doing today. The things we talk about here, they, they intrigue me the most um, because the conversations that the law brings up are so vital uh, to everyone's life that it's just, an, it's just an interesting path to go down. So Let's just, let's begin. The first thing I want to put forward to you guys is I want to think about, and this might be a bit of a theme throughout the podcast. I want to think about uh, the future almost about what the law, where it's going. I'm quite intrigued by that. So I want to ask you, is there any accepted part of law right now, a law that's in place at the moment? Um, not, it doesn't just have to be in the UK, but it's better it is, um, that you believe will be infamous for being unfair and unjust uh, retrospectively. So anything from the future, like people in the future will come back and think, God, why did they, why did they live like that? Why did they accept that? Um, so yeah, take it away, anyone. I mean, I mean, I can dive in, Ricky, because I'm actually working on something at the minute that kind of is tailor-made for that question. Yeah, um, and my answer is property status for animals. 
Now, you might think, what on earth is he going on about? Of course, you own a pet dog, you own a pet cat. But for me, that's kind of missing a big important issue, which is we all treat animals as if they are deserving of moral concern. They do have moral worth. Um, and if they have moral worth, then how the hell can you own something in that same respect as you can own a picture or you can own a book or you can own a car, something like that. So I think... Um, in, in a few years' time, we're going to look back and think, how the hell was that kind of property status for non-human animals in particular justified? Particularly when it comes to um, large-scale potential abuse of that moral worth, so factory farming and, and things like that. We've all seen the documentaries, I think, of the horrendous conditions that take place in mass pig farms and chicken sheds and things like that. And um, I think that's something that in, in a few years' time we're going to look back on and think, my God, what, what were we doing? So, so what I want to push you on that is, um, what do you believe could be the, the solution to that? Because I guess, just to play devil's advocate, people might say that humans do a whole host of good things um, in that respect too, because they're taking care of uh, animals that might naturally go extinct. And mm -hmm. they're also doing things like that. So what is the if they do have a moral worth, what is the absolute you know what's the solution to that could it be could it be an enshrined set of um you know legal rights for for a dog or something like that um or is it something a bit more like our switch to maybe veganism uh, as opposed to you know what we do at the moment i think tom might be able to bring a really good insight here with his approach from a psychological perspective because mm -hmm. ultimately what we need to think about as well as the theoretical propriety of whether or not animals should have more rights is will people care enough to actually make that change in the law happen um i mean i'm saying here that i think animals should have more rights i'm not a vegan myself so that could be seen as hypocritical in that respect that i'm quite happily having far too much butter on my slice of toast in the morning um like an unhealthy amount of butter i can't tell you how much butter i use but then kind of overlooking the fact well i'm i'm benefiting from industrial dairy processes to to have that luxury i don't need it it's not essential for me but i enjoy it so there's a psychological aspect i think of trying to change people's behavior um but it all comes for me i think ricky from that moral imperative and this is something hopefully we'll unpack a little bit more over the course of this discussion generally as in well it, it is the fact that we might do some good does that outweigh the fact we're inflicting lots of bad uh, would we for example say um, I don't know, the, the 18th century slave owner on a southern plantation in the States could be seen as doing a good thing because he provided good food, good accommodation, good sleeping quarters uh, for his slaves. Or was the fact that he was treating his fellow human beings as commodities and property so morally abhorrent that any good there might be is completely outweighed by that negative. Yeah, I think so I think there's two separate issues there, but I think probably the first one's more relevant for us at yeah. the minute so um, yeah interesting what tom has to say about that well i reckon about the um the animal welfare thing is um at the moment you're seeing a huge sort of increase in sort of synthetic meat like science wise the things people can do they can create burgers and like things that taste like meat without actually having to harm any animals at all anymore and so i reckon the sort of question of is i think one day that we will look look back upon what we're doing now is quite abhorrent like how could they treat animals in this way but at the same time, because they have access to this meat, which it can be made in the laboratory and that kind of thing, then it won't be so much of a moral question because it's so much more convenient for them in the future. So that's why I reckon. So, Tom, do you think 
the argument of morality here and its balance within the law, do you think uh, then as humans, uh, would you would you say the argument is that because it's going to become so convenient that people aren't going to stop to ask whether exactly. this is moral or not? Yeah, exactly. So it's sort of like, I don't think people are going to end up doing, behaving this way towards animal out of sort of a moral guidance. I don't think people, I think there will always be people who care, there will always be vegans, but in the future, just because it's so much more convenient and they don't really have to, they don't have to question their morality. They don't have to harm animals. It doesn't need to be an option for them. So I think the decision will come down more on convenience than an actual moral decision in the future. So what does what does everyone else think of this? The idea that um, the law will perhaps, or not even just the law, societal law, for example, will bend itself for convenience as opposed to ethics and morality. Does anyone else have something to say about that particular argument that Thomas put forward? I would definitely say that I agree to a certain extent because you can see the same sort of ideas reflected in the climate crisis. Um, people know morally that we're in a difficult situation now, like this is not going well. But the problem is, is that the way to solve it isn't convenient. And I think that is definitely a big issue with just people in general. I think it's in human nature that the the route that humans take is the convenient route. And even if that's not necessarily the moral route, they'd still take the convenient route. And I think with with animal welfare, there's clearly a much easier way we can see of getting out of this, like what Tom was saying about synthetic meats, those sort of things. But that same kind of thing isn't reflected in how easy it's going to be to get out of the sort of climate crisis that we're living in. Yeah, I, yeah, I do. I can definitely see why why you would think that, because it's quite hard to get a whole host of eight billion people to do something that's so much harder. Uh, than simply something that's more moral. But we actually have a um, very, very strict vegetarian on the call. Frank, what are your thoughts on this? Um, well, I think, well, in terms of this one, I don't think it's feasible that um, that will that, that being a vegetarian will become the consensus through law. Uh, but I think in terms of, although it may be more pragmatic, um, I think in that area, I think it's so ingrained in human behavior and in human autonomy that it is simply something which um, won't happen. Uh, however, I think in terms of the law now shifting from uh, being influenced by a more ethical and a more, um, let's say, uh, a bit of a moral standpoint and moving more towards a practical um, point of view, I think in terms of uh, a law such as the Misuse of Drugs Act, um, I think that is something which in the next 20, 10, 20, 30 years, we could see change because based on the facts, that policy simply isn't working, despite the fact it has been the consensus for the past 60, 70 years that from a moral point of view, uh, simply a possession of an illicit uh, substance can result in a prison sentence. So I think that is something which uh, we could see change um, in the next 20, 30 years. I think that's a really good comparison that Frank's brought up with the misuse of drugs out there. I mean, I, I don't know, is, is anybody else as obsessed with RuPaul's Drag Race as I am? Libby's nodding vigorously. Are you up to date on season 13, Libby? 
Unfortunately, I'm not. The British one's kind of getting my attention more so this time around. So it's season season 13. I think it's episode five, if I remember. It's not the last one. It's the one before that. RuPaul asked one of the queens, Utica, have you ever um, smoked marijuana? And Utica kind of like looks at the camera and kind of mouths the word yes while shaking her head and laughs and kind of tries to avoid the question. And RuPaul's an absolute hysterics at this. Like he's absolutely losing it at how funny this is. And if you if you watch it, it is really funny because we all know what the answer is. It's just Utica can't acknowledge that on live TV because then she'd be opening herself up to potential criminal prosecution. So the, the whole joke is exactly what Frank's identified, has kind of societal acceptance of potentially low-level drug usage of substances like marijuana or, or things like that, moved on to the point where actually that law is actually painfully ridiculous. Um, and this is not just, I suppose, a comedic point I'm trying to make and let you all know, hey, Josh watches Drag Race. It, it's actually a big theoretical point that a guy called Hans Kelsen picked up on. Now, Hans mm -hmm. Kelsen, he's not part of our course at Newcastle. Frank, I don't know if you've come across him at Manchester yet. No. I didn't no, expect you to no, if you're a first year because it's some pretty intense stuff he comes out with. But one of his big ideas is, is something he calls efficacy. And yeah. he says that in order to be law at all, then the rule that you're talking about needs to possess efficacy. And he says efficacy is just a simple social fact. You need to go out and you need to observe, is this a law that people actually follow? Is this a law that yeah. people feel as though imposes an actual obligation on them? Because if it doesn't impose the obligation and people aren't actually following it is, it, is it even law at all? If it's failing in its one job of getting people to follow it, what, what's it doing? What is it for? And I think that's kind of what Frank was actually talking about there with, the, with this Misuse mm -hmm. of Drugs Act. And it, it's, it, it's a really interesting thing. What things do people take into account when they're making the decision about what laws they should and maybe shouldn't follow? Mm -hmm. Does that kind of social appropriateness figure in that decision making? And if so, is is that is that moral? So then, if does anyone else have anything to add to that? Well, I was just going to say I think yeah. that actually links quite well with the laws that I was thinking about. I was actually thinking about was um, laws around self defence. Um, obviously, there's the requirement that when you use self defence, um, you cannot use excessive force to the force that's being used against you. And I actually found that this can be quite hard to reflect real life situations, especially with regards to women um, in altercations with men, because the yeah. real fact is that most women are not going to be physically stronger than most men. And so that law actually has a huge impact on women who try to use it because most women when fighting a man will reach for a weapon a man may not feel the need to do that. So then that completely takes the use of that defence away from a woman. Where when you view that from a realistic perspective, most people see that that is a huge problem with that law and it's probably an obvious problem as well. And I think that's quite a big symptom left from having a judiciary and, a, and politicians that are all white men, which obviously isn't how it is now as much, but it's definitely still reflected in the legal system. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'd I agree with that, Libby, and I think there's a secondary yeah. issue there. Sorry for throwing in another theorist and talking over you, Ricky, fine. you've got an overlap there from the Kelsons point to one that we do cover in the Newcastle course, which is Lon Fuller. Mm -hmm. And hopefully Ricky and Libby can remember this because I taught them it last year, so if you can't, then I'm going to be judging you, but also me. 
Um, Lon Fuller was a guy who said that law in order to be valid needs to have eight kind of criteria. Um, and a big one of them, he says, is that it needs to be capable of being followed. It needs to reflect the society that we all live in. And it's something that people will actually agree reflects how people are. And, and I think that defence that Libby just brought up there, we might have an issue there with one of Lon Fuller's eight desiderata. Is this actually something that is possible to comply with, given the social realities Libby's described? So then the question that I put forward is, the, the immediate question that comes to my mind is, should then it be that the law, in terms of its justness and fairness, should it be that the law sculpts the society we live in or that the society we live in sculpts the law that we follow? Because you see that there would be a strange dichotomy happening there because, you know, you'd grow up thinking that laws are these strict restrictions that maintain order. But then you may argue that it's actually, you know, just democracy, the society we live in, the general thought, the consensus of the people that should be reflected within the law. What does anyone have to say about that? I would say, I think the issue that we have is that law shaped society to a certain point until society developed and is now almost turning back on itself and the end changing the law. But I think that the problem that remains is sort of diversity. Um, I think because society changes so quickly, I wouldn't necessarily say that the law would be able to keep up with that. Um, and I think that is an issue that can really only be tackled by having a more diverse judiciary, like a more diverse parliament, all of those <clears throat> sort of things. Because at the minute, I think it's the case that a lot of laws don't reflect the current situation um, in society. And I think that can be seen in like in most discussions of cases. There's usually an issue that arises that definitely doesn't reflect how things actually play out in society now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There definitely needs to be some work done there, especially given the statistics we look at, um, how many people in the judiciary tend to be, you know, traditionally male and pale, and uh, whether that's something that really needs to be addressed or not. So does anyone else have uh, something to say to Libby about that? Otherwise, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it, Ricky, but I'm actually going to put Tom on the spot because I really want to know what a non-lawyer yes. thinks about this one. In I think this is something really that we as lawyers get in our own heads about and we ignore the fact that most of society aren't legally trained in any way. So yeah. what, what do Tom think we should be doing? Yeah, I think that um, I think the law sort of the, the, the structure of the law always kind of lacks behind moral structure. So I think there's always this kind of gap which the law is always trying to sort of catch up on. And I think it's probably, you know, I think society is sort of, um, I think it does have an impact, like we have an impact on uh, the law and sort of we, we, we create it. But I don't think, I think there are certain aspects which we kind of lack and maybe we don't have much of a voice to make that much of an impact. And there are certain things that citizens maybe they don't get as much of a say in law or maybe there's a small group of people who kind of decide. So Tom, yeah. what do you think about the fact that, so since you study psychology, what yeah. do you think about the fact that the general thinking, I think I read this somewhere about um, the human psychology is that they don't actually like to follow rules all that much. In fact, someone being asked to follow something might make them actually do the opposite. So what can help the law become stronger is perhaps is the law stronger by being more diverse or is the law just as strong as the people that can enforce it? 
What do you think about um, that? Well, I think there's definitely a, there's definitely a lot of occasions of if you tell people to do something they don't want to do it. But there's also sort of people tend to obey authority figures. Like if you put an authority figure to somebody and then they tell them what they you know to do a certain thing, they do normally obey. And I think um, in sort of a moral aspect, there's sort of a lot of the law. Um, a lot of the law isn't sort of like people sort of question it because they have their own sort of unique morality. So there's a lot of sort of moral relativism nowadays. So it means a lot of people have different opinions. You know, you might be Muslim, you might be Christian, you might be whatever. And so there are certain aspects of the law where some people might agree and some people don't agree. And sort of like uh, there was a question you asked uh, on your form about sort of um, uh, history and law and how it's changed and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was looking into that. Um, and I think the biggest change in sort of modern law has been like the change sort of from a religious sort of point of view where everybody was Christian and everybody had the same point of view and everything was sort of morally universal. And then you have the Protestant Reformation and then you, you have the split of religion and law and they become more uh, separate. And so you have this increase in moral relativism and atheism. And it means so many more people are going to disagree because you don't have that fundamental sort of Christian backbone but everyone has the same point of view and everyone's agreeing on the same sort of thing. So I think because you have so much diversity and differential of people, you're never going to get a lot of people agreeing on sort of the same points and the questions and that kind of thing, like questions such as like abortion and that they're so, you know, you can see them from both sides and so many people are not going to agree on that, that it's sort of created this sort of world where lots of people are going to disagree and everything's sort of open to debate. And it's really, really hard to get to, sort of a morally right answer because everybody has such a differing moral sort of structures, like personal structures nowadays. Mm-hmm. So perhaps you're yeah, thinking, I mean, go ahead, Frank. I know. Well, yeah, I, I, I was, just, I was going to say that I do completely, um, I, I do. So yeah, but I do agree with Tom that. And I, and I do think that um, in the past hundred years, I think parliament has to be careful not to keep passing statutes uh, which, um, yeah, perhaps they might uh, have a mandate for that. But I think, uh, from a psychological point of view, if 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 if, for example, it's um, abortion or if it's uh, consumption of drugs or whatever, um, they're not going to act as a deterrent that the law um, does mean it uh, to act as. And I think the more people won't obey by these uh, statutes which have been thrown in in the past 100 years, um, I think then that is when the uh, law starts to lose weight. Uh, and um, yeah, I think uh, there needs to be a uh, change going forward in the future in the way that parliaments try to deal with uh, these big issues. I think you can't, um, yes, yeah, so, so, so back to your point, Ricky, to begin with, I don't think that the law can mold society. I think, uh, Ultimately, it has to stem from um, society uh, itself. So, so since, since you would say that, Frank, would you then agree? I mean, given what Thomas said about the more and more moral relativism we're facing now, the polarizing opinions, is because of the fact, Libby, that diversity is growing. So maybe diversity within itself is making the law weaker because more and more people are disagreeing and diversity of thought is allowing for the law not to be followed in certain areas. So maybe, you know, if there was a flip side to this, I mean, I, I think diversity in itself would only strengthen the law, but there is an argument and conversation to be had about the fact that 
back in the day when religion and there was an actual backbone and authority or the way you see it happening in communist countries where the authorities tend to be so much harsher that people actually do follow the rules and regimes set out for them. But the more that the freedom increases and more diversity comes into play, that laws aren't, aren't as effective because there's so much conflict going on. And that's, that's reflected in the British society we currently live in. So Libby, what do you think about that, about diversity potentially um, endangering the efficacy of law? Um, I think the problem with that kind of like sort of ideal is sort of the fact that many laws that mean that everyone agrees, it's not actually true that everyone agrees. I think mainly when it, it appears like everyone agrees, it's the majority who agrees and then it's damaging on minorities so say for example um like the example that you used of a communist country it may seem that everyone agrees on the surface and those laws are probably beneficial to a fair proportion of the population but what about the people who it isn't beneficial to um, and what about when um when people choose not to follow it because it's not beneficial to them in the punishments are extreme um i would say uh I would say that weaker laws are a price, are a, I would say that they're a good, not a good price to pay, but it's the balance of a weaker law, well, depending on your definition of weaker, that applies more fairly to everyone, that not everyone may follow, but it creates a more equal society. And I think it would only be for a short period of time that weaker laws mean more diverse laws. I think because the laws would um, increase diversity, I think the longer the law supports diversity for, the more socially acceptable it becomes to the point where it doesn't make the law weak anymore. Everyone just accepts that the law will um, be diverse, if you understand what I mean. Yeah, I, I agree with that point. I, I don't think it's possible to have a system of law which is really strong when you can't have anyone agree. If, if there's no sort of moral, if there's no universal moral sort of code then you're never going to get a huge amount of people agreeing. So I don't think it's, impos it's possible to get a really strong law and you need something a lot more flexible. Yeah, yeah, that's, I would agree with that as well. Does anyone, does anyone want to add anything to that before I um, move on to the next question? Risk of opening a massive can of worms, Ricky. Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> well, one thing that I found really interesting, both in your original question about um, who follows who society, follow law or law, inevitably yeah. follow society's lead and the entire discussion that we've had following is that we're presupposing a, a legal positivist idea of what law actually is and that that for me is kind of the elephant in the room in all these situations that the very starting point of your question is actually loaded um you're you're kind of suggesting by by arguing that that a law is valid regardless of whether or not society agrees with it when you've actually got an entirely opposite school of thought, um, the, the natural law school of thought that says, no, actually, in order to be valid in any way, shape or form, there needs to be some kind of moral content to that law. And if that law doesn't have any moral content at all, then it's it's not law. Not yeah. it's a bad law, not it's a law that needs reforming. It is not law at all. And HLA Hart talks about this a little yeah. bit, and it, it's odd because Hart is is normally identified as a positivist, but at the heart of his conception, there is a, a concession to the natural law argument where he says, look, 
if you imagine law as merely as somebody in authority telling you, I have authority to direct your behavior, so do as I say, mm-hmm. that description could apply to law, but it could also apply to a mugger. It could also apply to a highwayman who's got a gun and pointing it to the back of your head saying, stand and deliver your money or your life. And Hart says, well, surely law has to be more than this just gunman writ large, as he calls it. There has to be some kind of reason that you as a citizen, as an individual, has to agree with the fact that the claim being made against you is just. And it's one that you actually have a good reason to follow. So that, that's a really interesting curveball, I suppose, to throw into the debate here when we're saying, does society have to go first and then law plays catch-up? Well, what, what if the rules aren't actually law at all? They're just the highwayman situation writ large and law yeah. something else. So then let me push you on that. And I want everyone to think about this because I will ask you as well after. I was going to ask you, Josh, then what is your way or your definition of fairness and making a fair law what Mm -hmm. should be taken into account then because if you are arguing that the law can be a like a highwayman with a gun sort of situation just enlarged Mm -hmm. then that could mean that any sort of authority followed could be in the same vein so then what will make a law fair Mm -hmm. i'm I'm gonna slightly sidestep that ricky because i i'm always reluctant in these things to let you know exactly what i think because i don't want to influence people coming through lim to to write an essay that i'm gonna necessarily agree with i want people to argue the points rather than um argue what they think i want to read so i'm going to sidestep it and instead i'm going to present what i think possible answers to the question could be okay um, so the, the first one, I suppose, is we need to remember when we're talking about fairness and the rule of law and all these things, we could actually be talking about two completely separate things. Now, we appear to have been talking in this discussion so far about what we might call a substantive idea of fairness, a substantive idea of the rule of law. And that, to try and make it easy to understand, would be that the law needs to get to a particular point. So say, for example, we accept that we all have the right to life if we live in a society that has a death penalty, then that right to life is arguably breached by the state through the Institute of Execution. So the law hasn't got to the right end result there. Right. There's a substantive failure in that the very rule itself is wrong. So that's one way of looking at it. And we call that the substantive idea. But then it's also a slightly weaker idea, which I think gives us much more room for for wiggling around the the ideas of moral relativism in particular that Tom was talking about, which is the procedural rule of law and ideas of procedural fairness. Um, And Lon Fuller, who I mentioned earlier, is a big proponent of this way of thinking. And he says, look, we we can't just pretend uh, that everybody will agree on everything. So we can't necessarily have an idea of substantive fairness because we're always going to get disagreement. So all we can have is some kind of set procedure whereby the rule is applied fairly. You've got access to the courts, for example. Any rule is something that you as a citizen can find out about. You're going to be able to, for example, not be held liable for something that wasn't illegal when you did it. Um, all those kind of things around, look, It's not the substance that's important, it's the application of the law, how the law is made. And as long as it's made in that fair way, then we might just have to put up with ideas of substantive unfairness 
just because otherwise we're never going to have any law whatsoever. Yeah. But like I said, I'm, I'm not going to come down any further on what I think about those two, I'm afraid. But um, there, I think that might help us here narrow down exactly what we're talking about when we yeah. say fairness. Are we talking about moral procedural fairness or are we talking about moral substantive fairness? Because arguably they're two very different beasts. Yeah. Does anyone want to pick up on what Josh has said? And I want to hear what you guys actually think. And you're not allowed to sidestep, by the way. So, <laughs> so don't even try that one. I think from my point of view, I would probably be more along the lines of the former point that Josh was discussing. Um, mm -hmm. I think an issue that I have with the rule of law is that it's stated in very general terms that everyone is treated equally before the law. But this discounts the fact that everyone doesn't come to the law as equals um I mean, what do you mean by that sorry what do you mean by everyone doesn't come to the law as equals i mean there's so many different factors that affect people i mean wealth um class race okay. all those kind of things um i think to say that everyone should be treated equally before the law is it sounds like a great statement at first but i think it only means something if different people's situations are taken into account and are factored into being treated equally. Um, because obviously, if you get someone who um, doesn't experience the same privileges as other people coming to a court of law, um, say, on suspicion of a certain crime, um, they're not going to get the same treatment just because the rule is the same as someone who is in a completely different situation to them. I think the rule has to take into account that we don't live in a world that's as simple as that. And I think that's what makes a law fair if it can be applied depending on the situation that the, that the person in front of um, judges is, is in. Yep. If I can just give what I think is a really good example of what Libby's talking about there. I'm sorry for cutting you off, Tom. Um, if we look to Black Lives Matter um, protests in the US over the summer, I think that's exactly what Libby's talking about. We've got there the procedural, the formal equality where, in principle, everybody's got equal access to the court system. The police are meant to presume everybody is innocent until proven guilty. But actually, what we've seen again and again and again in the US is exactly the opposite, where people of colour are treated very, very differently to, to white people, where, where poorer people are treated very, very differently to wealthy people. And the Black Lives Matter language that they, they've started using is, well, people have got equality before the law, but they've not got equity before the law. And that's exactly what the procedural substantive division I was talking about earlier is saying. It's the same, same thing, just using different terms. So for the Black Lives Matter protests, they'd say, look, we, we've got procedural fairness. We've got procedural rule of law here because the law presumes that we're all equal. But because of the social reality we live in, that substantive equality is missing. We've got equality, but we've not got equity. So yes. sorry. Sorry for bringing that in. But I think that's a that's really okay. good no, that, that was a very That was a very good point. That's actually exactly. So I, I assume that the problem there then becomes is the law being made is fair, but in practice isn't isn't necessarily being enforced as such. And I guess that brings back to what we spoke about ages ago, Josh, when you told us about why you wanted to study law, that picture of um, that woman who was about to be hit in the head, uh, because the police who should be a symbol or a beacon of protection was not necessarily doing so. Um, so I guess that's perhaps gonna be an age old question of, um, 
enforcement authorities and they're, they're a direct sort of point for how the law is seen and how it's acted. And so where are their limits? But I want to I want to continue with that question and I want to push Tom. I think, Tom, you wanted to say something on this? Well, I was just going to completely agree that um, you can, it's all well and good saying that we have this sort of fairness and equality in law, but there are innumerable factors which can take into, you can take into account which just changes sort of the way you should go about things in a court of law and you need to take into account this so you know obviously the the obvious ones are sort of racism sexism that kind of thing certain people have different wealth and advantages and also many people have different psychological disadvantages and advantages and sort of yeah. varying you know degrees of sort of mental ability or disability and so you, there's just so many factors you need to take into account and I think our law could do a much better job at sort of looking at these factors and sort of maybe treating people of you know who are in sort of different groups a lot more um in a way which puts them in a much more sort of equal manner and sort of a fair manner than what is probably going on at the moment so so frank i'm going to come to you in a second but i just wanted to oh sorry josh i'll get to you in a second so i just wanted to ask a small question to tom um you're i know you're an avid reader of uh, a lot of you know psychological books things like that uh you actually suggested to me Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. Now, when you were reading, let's say, a book like that, which is setting out these sort of rules, and they're obviously not laws to be followed, but do you then, I just want to ask you, is there enough similarity between people psychologically that you believe there could be um, in any shape or form a legal system that uh, prescribes to everything? And that's as set out in Jordan Peterson's book, where he tries to give you 12 Rules for Life. Do you think that's actually a possibility? Especially... Logically. I think there is, um, I think on a very basic level, I don't think you, you're going to get everything which everyone agrees on, but on a basic level, I think you can get the basics down because I think, I think everybody has a very innate sense of what's right and wrong. And an ex and evidence for that would be you have millions of religions all over the world, very, very different, but at the same time, they all have a very, very, they have the same backbone. They say, you know, you shouldn't kill, you should do this and that. And a lot of them, you look at them, they're very, very similar. And so, you can say they have these rules people have come up with them all over the world they haven't been talking to each other and they've got this you know they're the same so people clearly have a very sort of innate sense of what's right and wrong what's moral and so in the terms of that you can get people to agree with that and say we should live our lives in this way it's how we've been living it for centuries we can probably universally agree that living this way is right but then when you but society gets so complicated and so diverse and you have all these people mixing and then your sort of views can kind of get skewed. And so really specific laws, I don't think you could get a much a big universal agreement on, but I think you could with the, the bare basics of it. Okay, so Frank, I'm gonna to come to you next and then Josh, I'll get to you as well. Um, well, I was actually, well, like I was gonna raise a uh, question actually um, to Josh yeah, as yeah, to uh, the point he made about uh, how, how we have, um, equality before the law but not equity uh how yeah like do you think there is a possibility of uh, us being able to move towards um this model of equity do you think that's going to come through a, a change in statute or uh, is that just a like procedural change or um how would you go about that i'm i'm gonna hear that question frank i'm going to shelve it because i think that's connected to what i was going to ask tom and I, again i don't want to influence what tom's answer to this is going to be uh, before i answer your question so sorry if i'm messing with your order here ricky but i promise no, no, frank, no, I, I will come back to that so tom i, yeah. ju I just want to push you a little bit on the whole 
equality equity things it appeared like you were kind of coming round to the point where you were more in favor of the substantive rule of law the idea of equity in law that we need to have an actual correct outcome to some extent that just procedural fairness isn't enough and i, I just wondered where where does that leave you i suppose does that mean that you're buying almost as a, as a non-lawyer the natural law argument there Mm-hmm. If law doesn't meet that substantive bar of fairness and justice, then we can ignore it. It's not really a, a law at all. Yeah. Or do you think there's still still something to that? I think um, with the sort of the outcome, the equality of outcomes sort of equity thing, I think I, I understand that it's uh, there's probably a lot of benefits and advantages to it, but I think it's also risky because I think there's there's nowhere really to stop with it. You can sort of use it um because there's so many different groups and everybody varies so much and everybody's so different so you can't there's no really there's no there's no place to put the line saying this person deserves this much sort of more benefit or less benefit or we can't really make everyone the same and we can't give everybody the same sort of it probably wouldn't work in practice so giving everybody an equal opportunity to in the eyes of the law would probably be a much better way of doing it in my opinion, I think. But it's a very difficult question, I think. So to, to kind of paraphrase that a little bit, maybe in an ideal world we'd want the absolute substantive equality, but sadly we live here in the real world and maybe the procedure's the best we can do and that's better than nothing? Yeah, pretty much. I think it's definitely very, very difficult to, mm. to put it out in practice. No, it is. And, and to tie that back into answer Frank's question, I said I'd come back to it. Um, it's tough, man. I, I mean, I don't know where to start. So the, the problem with changing the law, the legislative level, um, trying to campaign for statutes to amend these substantive problems that we see is if the politicians don't care, they're not going to do anything. Uh, they, they've been elected to put forward a particular mandate and to represent their constituents as per the manifesto they were elected on. And if they don't think they're going to get reelected, if they push a legislative point, they're not going to do it. So it doesn't matter how fair we think a particular outcome is going to be. If people in the wider society don't agree that that is something that needs to be legislatively changed, then you're off to a no start before you even get there. Um, The alternative, I suppose, is trying to drive change through the courts and through the common law. And I mean, the common law, I suppose, is unique in the fact that it's quite open to quite sweeping change in that regard. But again, it tends not to do that unless it knows society's already there. Bringing it back to what Ricky was saying earlier about the law playing catch up to society. Um, we tend not to see the courts getting very interventionist until society already agrees that the present law is bad and needs changing. So um, I think it's a battle for hearts and minds. And I actually think this is an issue for, for activism and for activists in the political sphere rather than necessarily one for particularly lawyers to think about because whether it's legislative or whether it's um in the courts it's hard to drive change unless you're bringing people with you yep i'm that there's there's actually a lot of things to talk about here to unpack but i think uh i'm gonna have to bring it to a close unfortunately but there is one more thing i'd like to ask all of you right before we end this and it's just addressing the elephant in the room, like the elephant in the world even, it's about coronavirus. Now, what I wanna ask you is individually, just tell me as, as quickly as you can about how you think this pandemic is going to possibly affect the fairness, uh, justness or reasonableness of the law coming 
going ahead because I'm assuming that this is going to have a big impact and not just the way we live. So not just societally, but legally. And if one's affected, we know that there's an effect on the other one, which we've been talking about before anyway. So, um, yeah, what do you guys think, starting off with Frank? Um, I mean, in terms of this question, I can only really talk on behalf of uh, the uh, the um, system in the, in the UK. And I think yeah. currently even before the pandemic, we had a massive backlog of cases uh, in which um, after a few years of cuts to the judiciary, um, we've ended up in a situation now um, that has been combined with the uh, effect of the pandemic in which I think um, cases are now going to have to be streamlined. They're going to have to be prioritised. A lot of people aren't going to see uh, much justice take place uh in the next couple of years and i think that is a major major problem right now at the moment in the coming years i'm not too sure i don't know if this might result in a change to the way in which um criminal law in particular operates in a combative uh defense and prosecution style i don't know if we might have to move more to um a system you see in france in which they don't have that um so yeah, I'm I'm I, I'm I'm not entirely sure, but I just know that things are quite bad at the moment. Yeah, I think we can all agree on things being quite bad at the moment. Uh, Libby, what do you reckon? <laughs> Maybe a couple of elements. Um, I would say probably one of the big issues is going to be that we're going to well, we're in a really hard time at the minute, and it's going to stay like this for quite a long time. And I think sometimes when society overall is in a period of hardship, I think quite irrational laws can come out of that. I mean, look at the depression in America, prohibition, that didn't end well for anyone. Um, I think in times of hardship, I think there can be quite irrational decisions made. So I think that's worrying for the future. Um, and then also I'd say um, a lot of people are gonna be going through a lot of hardship and especially I think with how much money the government has been spending at the minute, obviously completely understandable. I think there's going to be more cuts to legal aid because let's be honest, it hasn't exactly been high on their agenda for the past 10 years. Um, I think that's going to be really problematic for people trying to go through the criminal courts, but also just in general, because people have less money, it's going to be really problematic for getting into the civil courts as well. Um, I think it's going to really affect access to justice in the long term. Yeah, yeah. Josh? I've, I've got two big things I hope come out of it, Ricky, as well. So I'm going to try and do them quickly to squeeze them in. Um, the first one is I think that the public, similar to like Libby said about the idea of um, potentially unfair laws being rushed out in a case of emergency, I think the population now are more aware of that. So I think there's going to be greater legislative attention now, particularly on the tightness of drafting mm -hmm. legislation. And I have in mind in particular, I don't know if everybody can remember in lockdown too, um, the whole debacle about what the hell's a substantial meal. You can go out for a pint as long as you have it with a substantial meal. Does a scotch yeah. egg stand, count as a substantial meal? What about two scotch eggs? Um, uh, that, that's a silly question, but it's only a silly question because the person who wrote the law didn't think enough about what the hell they meant when they were writing the term substantial meal. 
the same with the ladies in Derbyshire over Christmas who were who were kind of fined by the police for going on a five mile drive with a cup of coffee. They said, well, we stayed local. The policeman said five miles away is not local. That's bad yeah. drafting. So I hope that people are aware and politicians are aware now of the problem there and tighten up their language um, appropriately. And the second thing is another thing I was obsessed with a few months ago was Quinn Blakey. I don't know if that name rings a bell to anybody, but she was a hairdresser in Bradford who refused to shut down in lockdown too and ended up having like 30 grand's worth of fines for breaching lockdown regulations. And she just refused to acknowledge the authority of the courts because she relied on a certain provision of lawful dissent in Magna Carta 1216. That's nonsense. That's absolute legal rubbish. But she believes it. And I think that's highlighted then this other problem of potential public legal literacy. Um, if the people honestly believe that that's what the law is and that they can just opt out of laws they disagree with, then something's gone wrong somewhere. So there's a new all-party parliamentary group that's been launched on political literacy. And I think the focus of that group is also going to be on public legal education, taking law out of the law schools, out of the law firms and the courts, and letting people know basics about how the legal system actually works. Yeah, I think that brings it to um, a very good point to ask our non-law student uh, exactly what he thinks is going to, what he thinks the pandemic's effect is going to be on legal fairness and justice coming forward. Well, I've sort of pinpointed two things I thought were really interesting, sort of ethically and morally, which it kind of brought into question. And I was sort of reading about sort of vaccines in poorer countries and how they're going to sort of go about it. And um, a lot of poorer countries can't, they can't afford to produce as many, you know, vaccines as we're producing. And I was reading this thing about dementia, pa uh, dementia patients, which only have, they only have a 14 month life expectancy. Like they probably won't live alone. They don't have a great quality of life. And um, the, they were having to take into consideration who they should give the vaccine to and who they can't, like who they need to exclude. And they're saying that, maybe they need to exclude this dementia patients because they're not going to live very long anyway. And maybe they shouldn't just give them the vaccine, which is, I thought, a very interesting sort of ethical question. Like you, you've literally got to a point because of this coronavirus where they're having to decide maybe they need to let a certain groups of people die. Who's more important than others, which I think in the eyes of the law is very, very difficult. And it's very interesting. And I also think that there's also a lot of people who don't want the vaccine and obviously you need, you need herd immunity. You need as many people to have the vaccine as possible for it to work. And then you have people and sort of the question is, should they have a right to refuse to get the vaccine? Like, should they be able to do what they want? And I've, I've seen that people are they're putting in consequences if you don't get a vaccine in certain countries, like you can lose your job, you can get fined, that kind of thing. So it sort of brings in the question is, do people, even if it's affecting everybody, do they have the right to refuse this vaccine or not? And accept those consequences i think it's really interesting yeah well guys i wish i could you know dig into all the things you have put forward but it, it has i think it's time to end it here given the time frame that i've been given um so to be honest with you guys i think i think this has been great it's been great for you guys to come on here and uh, say your piece about legal fairness and justice it's definitely been a, a new experience for myself and uh, you've all helped in enhancing that to the best it possibly could so uh, well done guys i think i think this was good so thank you everyone for coming on the podcast today if you've listened to this podcast and would like to get involved, please email nelr at newcastle.ac.uk. You will get a spot because they actually gave me one, so I'm sure you will too. Thank you very much for listening. Um, and hopefully, 
uh, you might just be able to listen to this voice once more. 